to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Gender has been in the news recently, especially if you've paid attention to the the Southern Baptist Convention and the whole kerfuffle there about whether or not a woman should teach or preach to a man. Uh, spoiler, yes. Um, but as our guest today points out, gender includes more than just women. It also includes men. And apart from roles, role questions about you know what roles a man or woman should or can play and whether there should be such limitations. Uh, it's the question of, of more fundamental question about what it means to be a man and how the Bible presents that. Uh, so Kelly Murphy is our guest today, and she's wrestling with that question of how the Bible presents masculinity in the story of Gideon as a kind of uh, as a window into that larger question. And so wherever you sit on on that question and in those debates, I hope you're able to really listen to the kinds of questions that Kelly asks in this interview, um, and also to think through the methodological questions that are involved in the asking of those questions. Um, So we get into both of those things today. Also, I want to give a little shout out to James Steinbach for his work on our new website, which is now live on script.study. Have a look, and thank you, James. Also, thanks to Ed Hatke, our producer, and to Reb Rebecca Terhune and Tommy Molman on marketing and to all of our regular donors and one-time donors. Thank you so much. You make this happen. All right. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch. I'm here with Kelly Murphy. Kelly is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Central Michigan University. She has her PhD in Hebrew Bible from Emory, and she's the co-editor of Apocalypses in Context, Apocalyptic Currents Through History, published by Fortress, and is the author of Rewriting Masculinity, Gideon, Men, and Might, published by Oxford University Press, which we're discussing today. Kelly, welcome to OnScript. Thank you for having me. So I, I wanted to acknowledge up front that um, when I first got to know you, I got to know you as my my boss. Uh, so <laughs> when I started uh, my PhD, Emory, you you were the head TA, and um, in in David Peterson's Old Testament intro class at at Candler School of Theology, and I was just a TA minion, and <laughs> and so my my question up front, and this is. This is to, to give voice to my male fragility. Um, is do you, do you still see yourself um, as my boss in some way? <laughs> Absolutely not. In no way. Um, I no. <laughs> there's no there's no lingering kind of. Well, I mean, I guess if we're going to be honest, that will always be part of our relationship. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, yeah. That's see. That's why we we appreciate honesty here. Um, so before we get to your book on Gideon, I wanted to to ask a little bit about your your background too. So you you're uh, one of the first in your family to go to university, if I've got that correct, and and then you went on to study religion. And so I can imagine there's a there's a mix of a sense of pride in you going to university, but on the other hand, like um, religion that's an interesting choice. Uh, so what what kind of reactions did you get in your family, and you know how did that, and and then why did you end up choosing to study religion. Absolutely. Um, So I was one of the first people to go to uh, college in my family. Um, My mother would later go on after I graduated from Mary Washington College to get a bachelor's degree herself. But at the time that I started at Mary Washington, I was the first person um, in our family to go to college. Uh, And so they dropped me off. with lots of love and excitement, and they were very proud of me. Um, but also, I sort of navigated college as a first-generation person because my parents didn't have any um, advice about how to register for classes or even really what I should do while I was at college besides get a degree. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I floated around from class to class and um, 
for a while, I thought I wanted to be a creative writer, a poet. Um, then I wanted to be an anthropologist. And then I started to get a little bit more practical and thought I might be a, a psychologist. Um, but I s had been taking religion classes all along um, to fulfill general education requirements. And uh, that's where I found my passion. And that's where my heart ended up. Um, and I think that's because those were the classes where we were asking all of the questions that I had always been asking as a kid, um, but I had never had conversation partners really to, to talk about those questions. Um, and so I, getting to do that with, with the professors at Mary Washington and also with my fellow students was amazing. And I fell in love, um, but with theology, oddly, it wasn't with biblical studies. Um, I was just, that's, that's what I loved. That's what I wanted to do. And and did you you mentioned your mom went on to get her bachelor's after you. Did she did she choose religion? She did not. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. Yeah. Um so so you, you uh ended up studying religion and well you 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 were drawn in by theology and when did you end up being you know drawn into biblical studies? Yeah, so I think the first time I realized how wonderful biblical studies was um was in undergraduate um classes, uh, specifically in my introduction to the Old Testament class, when we were studying the flood story. And I can remember this really clearly when um, my professor outlined the differences between, you know, what we have come to call the J and P flood stories, um, the number of animals that went on the ark, the days that the flood lasted, all of those things. And uh, for me, this was this amazing eye-opening experience um, that maybe the Bible was more complicated than people had led me to believe. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I got to the University of Chicago that I really found biblical studies to be the place where I wanted to stay, where, where biblical studies became my home. And and you, at so at, at Chicago, so, so it wasn't, you didn't have the intro um, class at Chicago. Where, no, where was that it was one? at Mary Washington College. Okay. And yeah. who, who taught that? Uh, Dr. James Goring, okay, who's a New so Testament you, person, actually. So, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so then at Chicago, I wanted to ask because I know you studied with Tikva Frymer Kensky, and you, um, who who I've always admired, um, especially her. She's she's known for her book in, in the wake of the goddesses and uh, reading women in uh, of the Bible, and uh, so. I, and she's uh, unfortunately no longer with us. So I was curious about your experience of studying with her and if you have any stories about about her. Yes. Um, so Tikva was a brilliant and terrifying and kind woman. Um, and it's an I, interesting mix. <laughs> and I, um, I, I owe my... I, I owe the fact that I believed that I could become a scholar of the Hebrew Bible to Tikva. She is the person who made me realize that this was something that I had um, the passion for, but also uh, sort of the intellectual chops to at least take a stab at it as much as, as much as any one of us, you know, can do. Um, and uh, so she was brilliant. Um, I think that anyone who has read any of her work knows that uh, she was also a little bit terrifying because she was um, not afraid to to call people out when they were wrong or when they weren't working hard enough or um, when their ideas were not as um, complex or nuanced as they might be. Um, and that was really the first time that I had had the opportunity um, to work with a strong, amazing, brilliant woman. Um, and so this was new for me. Right. Um, and, uh, but she was also incredibly kind. Um, and so I remember, um, one story that I'll share is that, uh, as a master's student at the Div school in Chicago, I was taking classes with PhD students who of course were, um, sort of famously, um, because it was Chicago, maybe in their sixth or seventh or eighth year in their oh, yeah, PhD yeah. program, right? Um, I think the aver average length is like eight years, isn't it's it? It's pretty long. Like that? Uh, yeah, eight to ten. It's, yeah. it's pretty long. Um, and so you can imagine that as a first or second year master's student who was just learning Hebrew, I had a hard time keeping up with people who were in their fifth year of their PhD program um, and who knew Hebrew and Aramaic and all sorts of 
biblical languages, ancient languages. Um, and Tikva recognized that I was, that I was behind, that I was struggling. Um, and, uh, at the same time, she was also very sick, um, during the period that I was at Chicago. Um, and so she would call me, um, I would go into her office, you know, this is sort of before the kinds of cell phones that we carry around with us now. Right. Um, and so she would, I would go into her office at the Div School and she would call me there um, from her home and we would read Hebrew together over the phone. She, she lived out in the suburbs um, and she would help me with my pronunciation. She would help me learn um, how to parse verbs, how to think about the text, what the rabbis had said about the text, how it reflected ancient Near Eastern um, issues and backgrounds. And uh, she spent hours doing this with me and it is one of the most um, amazing things that anyone has ever done for me and also the kind of thing that I would like to be able to do for my students. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And so, so is this, is this you offering to spend hours on the phone with every <laughs> one of your students? No, that is not what just <laughs> do, happened. Do, do, do you commit right now to, right. <laughs> to, to hours of Hebrew study on the phone? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's no, really cool. To, to that's amazing. Was an, it was an amazing gift that she gave to me. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, and I could see that uh, you, you know, you're a very invested teacher uh, just from like, you know, what I see in Central Michigan University. You got like a teaching award there, didn't you? Something like that. Some kind of teaching recognition. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What, what was that? Um, I got the uh, Central Michigan Excellence in Teaching Award uh, a couple of years ago. And then this past spring, um, I got the uh, College of liberal arts and social sciences, uh, maroon teaching award, which is the teaching award for, um, a tenure track or tenured faculty. Oh, very cool. Congrats yeah. on those. Um, so we're wanting to talk about, um, your, your book on rewriting masculinity. Um, but, but just to back up for a moment, we both studied, um, we were both supervised by David Peterson at, at Emory and he, so he, so he supervised us. And for those who don't know, um, David Peterson, who's now retired, he, he's the, the quintessential editor. Um, uh, so he, he edited the SBL Handbook of Style, which uh, would be not my nightmare. Um, but, but I think his dream, you know, like he, he just loves that kind of thing. Um, and then among other things, he's known for, for asking the question, like, with what method are you studying this text? So, so just to kick off our you know, look at your book on Gideon in Judges six and eight, six to eight. So, with what method are you studying uh, the the stories of Gideon in those chapters? Yes, um, I'm channeling David Peterson. You here. are. You're channeling David Peterson, and I'm having all of the sort of requisite panic that one oh, has oh, oh, when someone just, asks you. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, before you answer, too, um, I was when we were at SBL this last uh, November. I. You know, he was there at the Emory reception, and I was telling him about a book I'm working on, and he asked the question. He said, "With what method are you studying?" And I, <laughs> I, I had a panic attack too because I'm because I don't always sit down and start with method and then work out from there. Sometimes, sometimes I kind of work with a text and then to kind of look backward at, at what method I I was employing and, and think of it that way. So anyway, what what what, what method are you, were you using as you look yeah. back? <laughs> so if I look back and think about what method I was employing when I was studying the story of Gideon, um, it started with redaction criticism um, and maybe even just literary criticism, a reading of, of the final form of the text, the text that we received. Um, and this recognition that famously the Gideon story is full of all of these sort of contradictions, things that don't make sense. He has two names. Um, he fights two battles. Uh, there's sort of two endings to the story. Um, and I had always been interested in how the text that we have came to be. Um, again, think about the Noah story and how I fell in love with, with the Hebrew, uh, started to fall in love with the Hebrew Bible. Um, and uh, so when I started, I wanted to know, how did we get the received text? Um, why were there all of these things that seemed to be sort of contradictory? Um, but the longer that I spent with Gideon, 
the more I also started to think about all of the ways that the text is thinking about whether or not or how Gideon is acting um, as a man should in ancient Israel uh, with all of the sort of um, caveats that go along with asking that question. So at some point it became clear that masculinity was this this key issue running throughout the story of Gideon, um, this question of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a warrior. Um, and so I started to supplement the redaction criticism that I was trying to do um, with thinking with masculinity studies and then also eventually with reception history and the different ways that people have understood and used and read the story of Gideon. Okay, so you have redaction criticism, masculinity studies, and reception history. And I think if people listen to this podcast, they're familiar probably with redaction criticism, so looking at how the text came to be, um, uh, how it was formed, and then uh, reception history as well. So what what um, what exactly is masculinity studies? What are some of the key questions in that key field? Key questions? I, I think masculinity studies sort of starts with the recognition that for a long time, people thought when when people thought of gender they thought of women you know who has gender women have gender um and so sort of the kind of masculinity studies that i was borrowing from um or using was recognizing that um men have gender too uh, to sort of put it simply um and that there are cultural expectations for how boys and men should act uh, and that those cultural expectations obviously are different depending on the context that one is standing in. Um, and so it's sort of asking the question, what does a particular time and place expect men expect from their men or expect, how do they expect men to, to act? Yeah. Okay. So um, it, it's interesting because you, um, y- you know, I, I, I read your book and then I went back and reread Judges 6 to 8 and and i realized like ha- having had sort of your study i was like wow this question is really pervasive in this in the story so um and and you identify like several stages of of in of the text and then look at how masculinity or the ideal of a man is is described in those stages of the text and so maybe do you want to just outline those briefly so we have we have them kind of in front of us. Right. Um, so in judges scholarship for a long time, and this goes back, you know, back to our German reduction criticism friends, uh, people have recognized or, or argued that judges eight is the oldest part of the Gideon story. Um, and that is where Gideon rarely interacts with Yahweh, where Gideon is chasing these two Midianite Kings down, where he asks his son to kill these Kings. Um, and then kills them himself sort of in blood revenge for the death of his brothers. Um, and so people have argued for a long time that that's the oldest part of the story and then that the different layers were added. Um, and so in my book, I talk about how Gideon the warrior is the oldest part of the story, Judges 8, um, but then how there were uh, additions to the story, um, including uh, the sort of layer that has Gideon working with Yahweh, um, asking for signs, going into battle for Yahweh, the messenger showing up to Gideon, um, which is very Deuteronomistic um, in that uh, it's questions about whether or not Gideon is working um, with God, working with God appropriately, that kind of thing. Um, and also in that same sort of layer of text, we see that it's not just Gideon and 300 men, but rather Gideon and lots and lots of other tribes, um, which which scholars of judges have long thought that that sort of um, pan-Israelite layer was an addition as as the biblical text grew. Um, yeah, because a lot it, of the early judges' stories are very local, aren't exactly, they? Exactly. Localized, then, tiny little, you know, yeah. bands of people going off to do one little thing and then it's over. Um, yeah. And then exactly. it was received into a book for all Israel, so mm-hmm. then it was... Yeah. Okay. So you get these additional layers. Exactly. Um, sorry, this is very reduction criticism nerd heavy. Um, so, uh, finally then, um, I argue that there's a sort of third layer, which is the story of the ephod, um, which a lot of reduction, uh, critical scholars have thought was a late addition to the story because it, 
it it turns the story of Gideon on its head, right? This this man who has just delivered Israel exactly the way that God asked him to um, from the Midianite oppression is now somehow leading Israel astray. Um, and of course, that little that little story of the building of the ephod and Israel going astray works in the larger book of Judges, which famously has this downward cycle or downward spiral where every judge is less and less good at being, you know, faithful to Yahweh. Um, and so that sets us up for the stories that follow in um, Abimelech and then also with uh, Samson. Yeah. So, um, okay. So if, if someone's, I know for some of our listeners, they're, they're, you know, perhaps skeptical of redaction criticism as a method. And, you know, what you do in your, your study is look at different conceptions of what it means to be a man in these different layers. So maybe you could talk about that, but, but, you know, highlight what's in it for people who maybe aren't into redaction criticism, but yet could see these different conceptions in the text, nonetheless. In, in a lot of ways, I share people's skepticism about redaction criticism. And I say this as a person who just wrote a book about redaction criticism. Um, because at best, we're guessing about these texts and their history and how they grew. Um, I think the Book of Judges provides a really good test case for thinking about that. Um, we have some evidence from Qumran. It's not very much, but it helps us to think about how judges grew, um, especially Judges 6. Uh, and then... Um, yeah, because there's a... Um, sorry to interrupt, but no, there, okay. there's a um, one of the Qumran texts of Judges actually has an expanded text, doesn't it? In Judges it 6. Or is it a reduced, short, it's shorter a reduced, ones? Ah, it's a that's reduced what it text. Is. Exactly. This was a question on my comps exam at Emory. That's the, it's, it's triggering this memory. So, yeah. So, so that shows us that there's one version floating around that was shorter. That was and, shorter. Exactly. And there's a, another version floating around that's longer. So we that's can longer. actually see the text growth. Perhaps growing over history. time. Yeah. And, and, just to add a caveat that anyone out there who's thought about Qumran would want to say is that that text for Q Judges A is tiny. I mean, it is so small. It is not a lot to build a house on. Um, but uh, but I do think Judges provides a really good test case for thinking about the composition of the Bible, um, and uh, particularly the book of Judges. And if we don't even if we can't say for certain that the book of Judges grew over time, the texts from Qumran tell us that the Bible in general was in flux and fluid in the first century CE and that what we have now is different than what some of the texts look like then. Um, and so uh, that's sort of that's sort of my caveat about redaction criticism is that in some ways it is sort of a game that we're playing. But on the other hand, there is... Um, or there are very different portraits of Gideon in this story, which can be read fruitfully from a literary perspective, from a final form or the received text. You can read this story about this guy and his changing personality. Um, but you can also read it with an eye towards how um, different scribes might have thought about what it meant to be a man from the earliest uh, stories of ancient Israel where we have warriors who go out and fight these battles to later threads where these warriors are, um, you know, working with and praying to God, um, asking for signs, are doing something for all Israel rather than just this small band of men, you know, for a personal blood vendetta reason, like in Judges 8, um, to uh, stories about how, um, these men and sometimes women mess up when it comes to their relationship with uh, Yahweh, which is really important to get us to the book of um, Samuel and Kings. Because if the judges didn't mess up, then there's no need for a king, right? Um, so in terms of the literary, uh, the overall literary story, or sorry, the overall story of the Hebrew Bible, um, you know, that it's an important component of the text, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you have you have these different portraits of what it means to be a, a man. Like one might idealize the strength of a warrior, um, and and you know the willingness to kill these two kings. That as a boy, you're not ready for that yet. And then on the other hand, that theme of the fear of the would be warrior runs through the story as well. And so, so I I think there there are those two tensions in. In the book, and that that was the thing that really struck me when I went back and read it was how 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 much fear 
uh, like characterized uh, Gideon's, especially uh, the early descriptions of him in in the story. Um, and and then this tradition of reading Gideon in different ways continues beyond the Book of Judges. So, do you want to just give? listeners a flavor for some of the ways that he's been read subsequent to the book of judges because this this thing continues like it's not it doesn't stop with the with the bible right right gideon has a really long afterlife um yeah so now we're so in reception history we're in reception history yes what people do with the text and the story of gideon um so as early as josephus uh who's writing um rewriting the bible for his Roman audience, uh, Josephus gets rid of um, the doubtful, scared Gideon, the fearful Gideon. He gets rid of the signs, basically, the request for signs. Um, and he turns Gideon into this virtuous and just man uh, who is um, who looks very much like an ideal Roman man would look, um, which is super interesting. So he cuts out the stuff that's problematic from Gideon's story, um, or problematic for his audience in particular. We get to early Christians who see in the story of Gideon a model for how to be a soldier, but not a soldier on a real battlefield, rather a soldier for Christ, how to be a model of faith. Um, And there's sort of a wonderful text in Ambrose um, where Ambrose talks about how the fact that Gideon doubted was important because if Gideon hadn't doubted, then how would he have known he was really supposed to do what he was supposed to do? sort of a reflection on the importance of questioning and doubt um, in faith before one becomes a soldier of Christ in Ambrose's uh, reading. Um, And so it continues along along these lines all the way into the future where we have Gideon showing up in Veggie Tales, Um, you know, Larry the Cucumber in in the story of Gideon the Tuba Warrior. Um, Which I really identify with because I, I played the tuba. Oh, excellent. Who knew? (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, you know, Gideon just shows up all over the place um, in really interesting ways. And one of the things that I was really struck by as I started sort of exploring this was that in almost every depiction of Gideon, um, in almost every way that Gideon shows up outside of the biblical text, in one way or another, people were thinking about whether or not Gideon was being a man but they were almost always asking whether Gideon was being a man in terms of what their own cultural expectations for manhood um, were. And so they continued to rewrite Gideon over time so that he matched their own expectations or so that they could use him as an example for how not to be a man because he did not match their sort of cultural um, ideals for masculinity. Yeah. And, and you mentioned they shows up everywhere, and that's almost literally true because the Gideon's Bibles are all over the place. And and this this um, really shows my ignorance. But until I read your book, I didn't put together that the Gideon's Bibles had to do with the biblical Gideon. I think it was the plural that threw me off. But like I was like, oh yeah, of course, <laughs> it's referring to Gideon in the Bible. So um, and, and you tell the story of the. Um, the Gideons and how they formed. And so what were some of the ways that they were were even wrestling with this question? So this is one of my favorite stories in the entire world. Um, The the Gideons start in the late 1800s, around 1898, 1899. And this story goes, and you can find this story in any Gideon's Bible in any hotel room that you stay in. Um, The story goes that a man named John Nicholson shows up at a hotel in Wisconsin. And of course, in 1898, uh, in hotels where traveling salesmen stayed, they often shared rooms with one another. So he gets there. And um, according to one history of the Gideons that I read, the the hotel lobby is full of like drinking and gambling and smoking. And John Nicholson is a good Christian man. And he finds all of this abhorrent, but it happens that there's only one room with a free bed in it. And that free room, uh, the, the room with a free bed has a man named Sam Hill, who John Nicholson sees as a clean looking chap, right? This is the way he's described in in this history. Um, And so they end up deciding to room together that night. And before they go to bed, they discover that they're both Christians. And so they pray together. And when they pray together, they 
are inspired to create an association for Christian traveling salesmen, um, where people who who are like them um, could kind you know could find their people in these ho- exactly in these hotels full of these you know other men who are doing these other things, um, and so they uh, get together with another man. Um, whose name uh, was uh, Will Knights, I think. Um, and they decide that they're going to like have a meeting and call all of these people. Call They're going to have a meeting and they're going to ask um, tra- traveling salesmen who are Christians to come to this meeting so they can start this association. And then the story goes that they show up at this location um, for this meeting. And the only people who came were the three of them. Um, I know, right? And they're disappointed. <laughs> <Poor guys. laughs> I know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a sad story. Um, but they decide to go ahead anyways. And they, they have a meeting. And one of them, I can't remember which one, suggests that the name of their organization should be the Christian Traveling Men of the United States of America. And this is during I, the era when all the all the names of these associations were so long. It was amazing. <laughs> and and I think it was Will Knights who said, um, look, we're traveling salesmen. We're too busy to use a name that's that long. We need a shorter name. Um, and so they pray. And as they finish praying, Will Knights stands up and he says, I've got it. We'll be the Gideons. And then the story goes, he proceeds to read Judges 7, uh, sorry, Judges, this is really important. He proceeds to read Judges 6 and 7 and says, and therefore we will be the Gideons because Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do. But the story of Gideon, judge, uh, the story of Gideon ends in Judges 8, which is a horrible story to model masculinity on. Um, and I just, I fell in love with this, this idea that these men created a whole organization based on two chapters of Gideon's story, which doesn't end for another chapter. Yeah. yeah. And is there a slight irony too? And that, you know, that going back to the plural Gideons, you know, that there, that you're talking about the, the different Gideons of the text, you know, you've got <laughs> different presentations, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so th- so they choose the and, and also I mean saying he's always willing to do exactly what he's supposed to do um, is exactly the well, opposite of the yeah. text, right? Yeah, yeah, because I mean he's he's he needs all kinds of assurances and and quite a few. Not, so he's got the he has the initial assurance where the angel like calls down fire and burns the the sacrifice, and then he does the fleece thing, and and then God assures him with like. Okay, you go into the sneak into their camp and you'll hear them talking. The Midianites talk. So he's got three assurances, right? Um, and it's funny too because for me and and I've heard in Christian circles like two opposing readings of the signs. So on the one hand, like, hey, you know, we're supposed to ask ask for signs when to to make sure that we're doing the right thing, or that the very asking for signs is a demonstration of a lack of faith. Exactly. So um, do you think that, that the stories nudge us in one direction or the other, or is it completely open? I think it's open. Um, and I think this is one of the ways that one of the things that makes the story of Gideon so fascinating, um, because you can read those requests for signs into, like you said, totally different ways. Um, on the one hand, it's good to, to request signs before you go out and do things. On the other hand, I mean, how many signs can Gideon ask for before yeah. it becomes absurd, <laughs> overkill. comedic, overkill? Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the threads that runs throughout the history of um, the interpretation of the Gideon story is people sort of disagreeing about the signs, whether it was um, a good thing that Gideon asked for so many signs or a bad thing that Gideon asked for so many signs. Does a real man ask for signs or does a real man not ask for signs? Um, And uh, you see that throughout the history of of the interpretation of the story. Yeah, and I guess it depends on the prior assumptions about what it means to be a man that you're bringing to that question of signs, right? Right, exactly. And I mean, just to add a detail here. One of the interesting things is that if we read the request for signs against the backdrop of the ancient Near East, um, it was an expectation that 
military leaders would ask their gods for signs before they went into battle because you wanted to make sure you were going to win. Um, and so read against the ancient Near Eastern texts, Gideon is doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And often, in fact, they would ask for more than one sign because, again, you really want to make sure that you are going into this battle with your god on your side. Um, but if you don't know that ancient Near Eastern background and you read Gideon's signs from a different angle, it looks bad. It can look bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears here and do a speed round. And, awesome. and this is this is where I ask you uh, a bunch of questions, and you have about you know three or four questions, three or four seconds to answer. Okay, them. awesome. Okay, all right. Could you tell me in a sentence or two uh, about an academic e type conversation that you have that was kind of that was like an epiphany or a paradigm shift for you? I think it would be a moment with Tikva. I was talking to her about how I wanted to know the answer with like a capital T and a capital A. And she said, questions are more important. Mm, that's a good one. Continuing uh, the theme of, of judges, do you see yourself as a um, Yael, Deborah, or the lady who drops a millstone um, on, on the guy's head? Um, so which, which would you identify with and why? Do I have to pick one? Because I would like to be all three of those women. Okay. You could. Yeah. And, and why is that? Um, Deborah is an incredible leader. Uh, Yael, I, I mean, that speaks for itself. Um, and there are times when people need millstones mm -hmm. thrown on Dro their heads. <laughs> exactly. Right. Dropped on their heads. Uh, do you have anyone in particular in mind? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question. No. Okay. All right. Knock, knock. Who's there? Spell. Spell who? W-H-O. Okay, so, so I, I have two specially designed knock-knock jokes. Okay. okay? These, yes. these are with you in mind. Okay. Knock-knock. Who's there? I'm Gideon. Gideon who? I'm Gideon happy on my birthday. <laughs> okay. Knock-knock. Who's there? Masculine. Masculine who? The masculine me broke, so I'm just going to be who I am. That is amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I hope you appreciate those. All right. What's those the most sig significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? I have to pick one. Yeah. Ugh, this is like when my students ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is, and I mm. start by saying Genesis, and then 30 minutes later, we're talking about how it's actually Chronicles. Mm. I have okay. no idea. No, no idea. No, you, okay. All yeah. Right. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, what books do you wish men who are interest, who are into biblical studies, theology, or the study of religion would take the time to read? Uh, and not a biblical book, but like a, a scholarly sure. book. Sure. Um, I, uh, Rihanna Grable's Are We Not Men um, is an excellent book that I think everyone should read, um, including men in our field. Um, and so I'm going to say okay, that one. Great. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Mannels. All male panels. Okay. And the related manthologies. You <laughs> manthologies. Know. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's good. Uh, you're a college basketball fan, is that right? Yes. Women's basketball. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, so who... Who's the, I mean, so besides CMU, which I know, you know, you're loyal to, what's yes. your favorite college uh, basketball team? Besides the CMU women's basketball team, who is my favorite bas women's basketball team? That, oh man, I, that's hard because I mean, I am a diehard CMU women's basketball fan. How are they doing? Or how they, did they do this last year? Uh, they did. They did really well this last year. Yes. They, okay, well, um, I'll, yeah. I'll let you stick yeah. with them. All right. I'm going to go with women's basketball, CMU forever. Yeah. Fire up All right. Don't, don't, don't want to split your loyalties. <laughs> um, so do you play basketball too? Hilariously for the last two years, I have participated in the CMU women's basketball adult basketball clinic. And I think I have made a total of three baskets. Oh, that's about how many I made throughout my whole junior high career. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm not. Um, no, I'm not good at basketball. I'm good at watching. <laughs> yeah. But do you like playing? I, I do. I find it hysterical and really fun. 
<laughs> All right. Um, I know you, you have some interest in monsters, right? Yes. Okay. So do you, did you ever believe in the Loch Ness Monster? No. No. It, it, no. Do you, is there a monster that you ever believed in, like the Abominable Snowman or, you know, Sasquatch or any any of those? I think as a child, I really believed in vampires and werewolves. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. I, I saw this on Twitter, so I'm stealing a Twitter question. Um, okay. That I think you answered. So what's one biblical character you'd like to hug, one you'd like to punch, and one you'd like to high five? My answer... <laughs> Um, was to hug Zipporah, Moses' wife, um, and to punch Jephthah from Judges uh, and for obvious reasons. And um, I would love to high-five Judith. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Judith, yeah. Uh, um, are, are you more likely to be found at um, the Calgary Stampede Rodeo or uh, Monster Jam World Finals? That's the Monster Truck Final. Rodeo. Rodeo. Okay. Yes. Have you have you been to the Calgary Stampede? No. Okay. Um, I haven't been either. My wife's been there, and and she loved it. All right. Going going back to your time at at Emory, you studied yes. with with John Hayes, right? Did you have him? I I did. Yes. Okay. Yes. Do do you have any fun, um, memories of studying with him? Oh my goodness, so many. Um, he used to bring us moon pies to almost every class that he taught. Uh, what are moon pies? They are a, um, oh, how do you even describe moon pies? They're a sort of cake slash cookie thing that in the South, everyone Google moon pies. Um, like highly processed type. Oh yeah. Dessert yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're both terrible and wonderful. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and also he, he used to encourage us to, to chase rabbits. Um, and, uh, by that he meant, you know, sometimes going down unexpected paths when you're doing research is where you find the most amazing and fruitful things to study. Uh, and I always, um, and I, I think I said this in the acknowledgments of my book, um, I hear his voice a lot when I'm doing something and I think, oh, I don't think I should go, this isn't worth my time. And I hear him saying, you know, chase the rabbits, who knows what you might find. Yeah. Click on that Wikipedia link to the other <laughs> Wikipedia article. <laughs> and then 45 minutes later, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've, I know you're a creative teacher. So what, what are some of the classroom strategies or activities that you found most effective and helpful and interesting for students? Oof. Um, I mean, this is one that everybody knows, but uh, popular culture, the more you can bring popular culture into the classroom and connect it to these ancient texts, the more that students see these ancient texts um, as important and worthwhile and significant, you know, to study from an academic perspective. Yeah, great. All right. Um, so at the end of our speed round, uh, and I know we have to, our time's running short here. So I just, I, but I did want to ask about um, a, a uh, article that you wrote called how zombies turn me into a public scholar <laughs> yes. um and I, I know you had a, a time of zombie fame it, i did and, i was briefly zombie famous yes yeah and and it, the, there's a picture of you in that article and in your <laughs> i don't are you in your office that was, yeah that was my and, and there's a time. sign behind you on the wall of mm -hmm. of this this guy driving a tractor and then a zombie behind him and it says eat locals yes. which i love it's a, <laughs> such a great it's, sign it's a great sign um so, so how did how did um, and you taught a, a class called Walking Dead Apocalypse Then and Now. Mm -hmm. um, so, how did that course um, come about? And like, and how did it help students open up the Bible by talking about zombies? Yeah. Um, so at the time, I had just gotten to CMU. Um, it was my first year, and uh, Bible classes at CMU had not historically been filling. And so one of the things that they asked me to do was to come up with something that would get students in the seats. Um, and it was sort of the era of The Walking Dead. Uh, it was sort of around the time that The Walking Dead started to go downhill, truthfully. But students were still very much interested in The Walking Dead and in zombies. And so I um, had always wanted to teach a class on the apocalypse, and the two paired together really nicely. And that's how I ended up teaching that class. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did it, um, it was it helpful to, I mean, what are some of the ways that it unlocked the Bible, do you think, for students? 
I mean, I think the biggest way that it unlocked the Bible for students was that it got them into the classroom to study the Bible in the first place. I I remember my chair was really skeptical about whether this was going to work or not. He didn't think that students were interested in zombies. Um, And (laughs) right. And uh, so a few weeks into the class, you know, for the first two weeks, we talked about monsters, we talked about zombies. And then (laughs) once the ad drop period ended, we started reading ancient texts. And we started with Enoch, which of course, (laughs) I know, um, we started with Enoch, which is not in most Bibles, of course. And so most students hadn't read it. And my chair at the time was walking down the hall when he heard a group of students talking about how they had they had to read the book of Enoch for a class they were in and it was so amazing and really cool and full of stories about angels that had fallen from heaven and, you know, battles and all of those kinds of things. And so, um, I, I think that that just getting them into the room allowed them to read texts that they might not have read otherwise and to see how incredible these texts are and how in many ways the questions that people were asking when they wrote you know the various books of Enoch are similar to questions that are being asked in contemporary things like the walking dead or uh, the, you know yeah so so what what's the link between zombies and the bible there are no zombies in the bible i i have to say that now like th- that has to be one of the first things i say whenever i talk about zombies in the bible because otherwise um well, when I taught the class and when and when it got a little bit of attention, um, I received hundreds of emails from people who were angry that I was telling students that there were zombies in the Bible. I also got handwritten and typed letters in the mail from people who uh, did not believe in using the internet because the government was watching, telling me that there weren't zombies in the Bible. Um, so, uh, so there are no zombies in the Bible and, um, and I know people often say, well, what about Ezekiel and the dry bones or all of the people who come out of the tombs at the resurrection in Matthew, but zombies are specific. Um, zombies are one of the monsters that come to us from the non-Western world. They come to us from Haiti, uh, and the original Haitian zombie looks nothing like are contemporary zombies, um, and they we get our zombie through a sort of horrible history of colonization and imperialism and racism, and so uh, the link is not that there are zombies in the Bible, um, but the link is that there are stories about um, what it means to be human, resurrection, what happens after death. Uh, in both both texts. And then, of course, there are concerns about empire and imperialism and colonization running throughout, you know, both kinds of literature. Um, and so that that those are some of the links between zombies mm-hmm. and the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't know that history. And um, yeah, I was thinking about the, you know, the, the graves that open up yeah, at the crucifixion. But I, um, yeah, I see that yeah, so zombies are specifically walking dead and not those who come back to life. That would be a, a, <laughs> right. a pretty significant difference. <laughs> right, right, um, right. Yeah, but that, that's that's great, though, about using kind of popular culture to, that um, is asking similar questions to what the Bible is asking and show that, um, you know, there's a shared concern for for really fundamental questions that run through runs through the Bible. Um but then also, like, they're going to be inflected in really different ways, too. Exactly. It's a, it's a really good Culturally. way to get students to see the cultural differences, the, the you know, the vast differences between our world and the world of, of the ancient Israelites. Um, and it's also a really wonderful way to get students to read texts that they've read a bunch of times before anew and afresh. Most, of, most students have read the Gospels before in some way, but maybe not all of the Gospels, not all of the Gospels side by side. Not, and so it it allows them to see the text in a new way. And I think that that can be really exciting and fun for them. And of course, every time I read the text with them, they show me something new and exciting and amazing too. Yeah. And and so is the, would you say the U.S. government is, tr- is, is trying to... Um, to get us to think that there are no zombies in the Bible? Like, what do you think? Um, I mean, obviously they're going to be listening to this podcast. So, I mean, 
you can go ahead and address them directly if you want. But what, what do you think the U.S. government's role in all this? Well, you know, the CDC famously now, among, and this is famous among zombie scholars, uh, years ago, the CDC came up with a zombie preparedness guide, which you can still see. Um, and uh, it's still online. And, and of course, the whole thing is about how... Um, how to prepare for emergencies in general, but how do you get people to read about preparing for emergencies? Well, you put it in sort of a zombie comic book zine kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, maybe the government knows more than they're telling us. Mm, I don't know. Well, well, that's, that seems inevitable, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, get UFOs. I mean, we could go on. Right. Um, you say safely yeah. from Great Britain. <laughs> yeah. Well, just just a last question. Um, Going back to your book, what, what do you think is the, the challenge that you hope readers will take away from, from your work on rewriting masculinity? I think there are three things that I would want people to take away uh, from reading Rewriting Masculinity. The first is that traditional historical critical methods of reading the Bible are important, but it is incredibly important and I think imperative that we start to interweave those approaches with theoretical approaches to things like gender um, and to read with an eye towards contingent categories that can reveal things to us that we might miss if we use these approaches in isolation. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is no such thing as a masculinity or a femininity, right? There's no one way to be a man. There's no one way to be a woman. Um, there are multiple masculinities and multiple femininities um, and in between all around us all the time. And that was the case in the ancient world just as much as it is the case today, albeit in different ways. Um, and then the third and final thing I think is that we have to read with reception history as we move forward. We need to think about how reception, the reception of the biblical text is a way that we can responsibly claim our own role in interpreting and using the Bible and to reflect critically on what we're doing when we're reading the Bible, because we're never passively reading the Bible. We're always interpreting and doing something with the text. And so I think it's really important to think about what other people have done with the text and or the various texts so that we can also ask ourselves what we're doing with them. Well, Kelly, it's been really nice to speak with you and to hear about your book and your work on zombies as well. So <laughs> well, thanks thank so much for uh, taking the time to talk with OnScript. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.